As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. So the article is really an argument for thinking about governance, not just in terms of what's good public policy, although I'm for that, but thinking about it in terms of how to empower, restructure power in our societies so that the policy we win is sustainable and more can be accomplished in the future. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was very glad to have the chance to talk with Deepak Bhargava. Deepak spent 16 years leading the Center for Community Change and has a whole career in community organizing. The CCC is a 40 to $50 million budget enterprise that helps people organize to improve their local communities across the country. Deepak just recently left and joined the faculty at the School of Labor and Urban Studies at CUNY, where he will be teaching and writing on topics related to long-term vision, worldview, and strategy for progressives. He also mentors social justice leaders and organizers. Deepak is someone to know if you're interested in social justice advocacy, immigration reform, organizing, or nonprofit management. Deepak has written an important article for The Nation about how progressives should govern once they get back in power, and we talked about that and many other matters. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Deepak Bhargava of CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Yeah, so I'm Deepak Bhargava, and my story is uh, I grew up in New York City. My family emigrated to the United States from India when I was a little kid, and uh, I grew up in the Bronx and went to public schools and uh, grew up in the 70s and 80s here in the city in a multiracial neighborhood. I um, went to Harvard and did work there on uh, economics and decided I'd be a better activist than academic and got connected by a teacher there to ACORN, where I worked for a number of years, a community organizing group that works in low-income communities of color, and was eventually targeted long after I left by the right for uh, destruction. And then for 24 years, I worked at Community Change, 
which is a organization that provides support to grassroots organizations uh, working in low-income communities of color around the country. Uh, I left in 2018 and joined the faculty at CUNY, which is where I am now. It's uh, a lot of years that you can cover pretty quickly, but I bet there was so much happening with you in those positions. I'm curious about what you learned at ACORN. I know about the targeting, obviously, and I know about what happened. When I read even now about you online, some on the right do reference your ACORN time. What was that mm -hmm. like? ACORN was a very important organization and from my point of view, it modeled a, a set of really important commitments to how to do social change work. So the core work of the organization was every day uh, engaging poor people, working class people at their doors in public housing projects and neighborhoods, identifying issues that matter to them and running campaigns to fight and win for them at the very, very local level from trash pickup to um, better schools to the national level on things like bank redlining or affordable housing or healthcare, it became a major political force in the country when it started to register hundreds of thousands of low-income black voters. And that was really when it went into the crosshairs. Um, for me, uh, some of the key takeaways of that are how important it is to be close to the experience of people who are experiencing the worst injustices in our society and for that to really animate and ground an agenda for change and how important power is. The other side has money and resources. What progressives and people who care about justice have is people power. Um, so those lessons have stayed with me my whole career. Was the sort of the demise of ACORN personally painful to witness? How did you take that? Yeah, it was. And I think it was um, a major blow at the time for a progressive ecosystem that didn't have enough uh, organizing at its center. A lot of talent, both grassroots leaders and um, organizers, uh, had to find new political homes. And um, I think it's still true that the, the country doesn't have a kind of national poor people's voice or organization in quite the same way as ACORN represented. Um, so I think it's it's still missed. How did you start with Center for Community Change? How did you hook up with them? I'm kind of astonished by anyone who spends 24 years at one organization. <laughs> it's not <laughs> a very um, uh, current way of doing things, I know. Um, I like it. Yeah. So I was uh, I was recruited by a guy named Pablo Eisenberg, who was a sort of legend and uh, who's really been a role model for me my whole career. Um, he ran the Center for Community Change, and the organization kind of has a fascinating history. It it came out of the confluence of the labor movement, the war on poverty, the civil rights movement. It was founded in 1968 to be a permanent support center for grassroots organizations all over the country. People like uh, the Ruthers and Congressman John Lewis, uh, Julian Bond were very important in its creation in early years. So he recruited me to be the first director of public policy at CCC. And this was a period in the mid to late 90s where there was huge retrenchment going on in some of the big gains of the 1960s. So we had the crime bill. We had a very punitive immigration bill. 
We had uh, NAFTA. We had welfare reform. And the organization at that point really felt like it needed to return to movement building, organizing, power building kind of roots uh, from which it came and hired me to try to figure out how local community organizations could play a bigger role in national policy and politics, which was really the central project of my time at, uh, at the organization. How did that go? The field changed a lot, and I was uh, played a part in doing that. Some of the big things were uh, the field of community organizing. When I entered was, with the exception of ACORN, pretty allergic to electoral politics. It was kind of seen as corrupt, dirty, it's the wrong thing to do to take sides in elections. And we made a big commitment over a long period of time to engage community organizations in doing politics in a big way. So registering hundreds of thousands of new voters, eventually running a big big independent expenditure campaigns, big C4 programs. When I left, doing a big program called Win Justice with SEIU, Planned Parenthood, and Color of Change in the 2016 and 2018 elections. I think that current of seeing the relationship between what happens in a neighborhood, uh, the inequities and injustices that happen to working class people and people of color and national politics, that really got solidified. And there's no debate anymore about whether engaging in politics is crucial. The other big thing that uh, we took on while I was there was, was with a lot of other key people trying to nurture a new movement for immigrant rights in the country. That involved training lots of local leaders, helping to build new organizations, kind of crafting a big vision for, for what that would look like. And although we're at a pretty low point in um, the country's debate about the issue of immigration, the movement itself it has grown exponentially over the last couple of decades and, to my mind, is one of the real bright spots in progressive power building in the country. How big of an enterprise is Center for Community Change? Yeah, when I left, um, all the different enterprises were probably about 40 to $50 million, um, C3, C4, independent expenditure, something like that. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? It comes largely from individual donors and foundations, individual donors, large donors, small donors, a uh, little bit of union support. That is, I assume, not counting sort of a whole bunch of organizations that you support that are local. Right. So the, the organization um, would re-grant some funds to local community organizations um, around the country and then also raise and direct money to support electoral campaigns or issue campaigns that didn't necessarily flow through the central organization as well. So how do you fit that center into the progressive movement or the ecosystem more mm -hmm. generally? It is really part of a long tradition that's focused on building organization and power in working class communities and particularly working class communities of color. So if you think about the progressive landscape broadly, we have a lot of different constituencies that are part of that coalition. And um, there's a lot of vibrancy and energy right now, I would say, among and the resistance among people who are more middle income, in particular urban areas. And 
the role that community change played was really building organizations that are pretty rooted in places that could fight for, bargain for, develop leadership in, in poor communities, which are, in my view, an indispensable part of the broader coalition. Who are the other key players in doing similar types of work? There are um, obviously the labor movement, which has been an important partner for the founding and throughout the history of the organization I ran. There are other community organizing national support centers and networks that we collaborate with, um, like People's Action or the Center for Popular Democracy. There are other organizations that serve and work with low-income people, like Planned Parenthood or Color of Change. So that's the kind of larger family of organizations that the Center for Community Change sat within. Did you feel competitive with those other organizations for funding or for work, or or did it feel more like a family, like you just put it? I mean, mostly it felt like a family, and you know, families do argue with each other from time to time. It wasn't mainly about resources, but it might be about strategy or approach to a particular thing. Um, but you know, one of the things that I most appreciated about the the guy who hired me, Pablo Eisenberg, was he brought this kind of very generous spirit to leadership, kind of this view that the larger project we're in is more important than our smaller organizational concerns. And so one of the roles that community change plays in the landscape is kind of a, a convener, someone who brings together lots of other organizations to take on big issue campaigns or big projects. And um, that kind of low-key humble ethos has always been part of the, the DNA, which I've always appreciated. Well, how would you characterize the relationship with the Democratic Party? You know, historically, I'd say large parts of the, the traditions that the organization came from, some of the civil rights tradition, some of the community organizing tradition, were pretty suspicious of the Democratic Party and had a kind of adversarial posture to it or grudging um, grudging embrace, and that was reflected for a long time in a kind of allergy to electoral politics. In my own experience, the 2000 election was kind of a, a big wake-up call where it became clear that there was simply no way of getting to the kind of outcomes we wanted without engaging in uh, electoral politics and in serious power relationships with, um, with elected officials. Uh, especially in the Democratic Party, that were long-term, and that if we didn't, we were actually complicit in uh, some of the consequences of that, like the disastrous Iraq War and cuts to programs and so on and so forth. So there was a big debate, I think, at that time about it, and I think there's still a very healthy um, inside-outside view of what that uh, relationship should be, that is to say, the people first and those agendas that come from knocking on a door in a neighborhood should be be the center of how politics is developed, not allegiance to a party or a candidate. That's still part of the DNA. But there's also a recognition that um, converting those dreams and aspirations at the doors into policy requires uh, real partnerships and requires engaging in the hard work of politics. So I think that's the balance. That's kind of prevalent in the field these days. What do you think you've learned about leadership from running an organization 
of that scope and size for this amount of time. Hmm. The big thing I think that that I took from the experience is that long-term fundamentals of strategy and talent and organization matter an enormous amount. So there are disruptive forces that come along all the time and that the kind of patient investment you make in local leaders and leadership training and building organizations, expanding their scope and scale, improving their sophistication on working with data or communications or getting involved in policy, that kind of slow grind, it's less flashy and less exciting than the big electoral moment or the big issue campaign, but that it's in that work that the outcome is written. Um, that work is the is the foundation for what happens in the big national stage and the big moments. So a deep appreciation for all the thousands and thousands of people who in this country are knocking on doors and developing leaders and really doing democracy at the grassroots, because that's where I think the real work needs to be done. How do you stay connected to the people that you're serving when you personally, you, you know, Harvard educated and had jobs that pay more than minimum wage, obviously. And there's a tendency, I think, for a disconnect to develop if you're not careful about it. How do you stay connected to regular people? It's different now that I work at a university. Um, and I'll talk about that in a little while. But uh, when I did the job, you know, the nature of the organization, even for people who had executive roles, was you spent an enormous amount of time in meetings and demonstrations in planning conversations with grassroots leaders trying to figure out how to turn something around. So we weren't big enough that there were, you know, many, many layers between leadership and frontline work and the nature of the particular model we had really depended on deep listening to what people wanted to do to improve their future and their communities. So it was kind of baked in, you know, my own story, I really feel like was sort of a social movement story. And it's not too well known, but the, the act that enabled my parents to come to the United States, the 1965 Immigration Act, was really a result of the civil rights movement. I've always thought of it as kind of a underreported kind of piece of that story of the, of the civil rights movement's accomplishments. And most immigrants and children of immigrants don't recognize their debt to the black freedom struggle. And then if you fast forward to uh, my getting to Harvard, the scholarship that I got to pay for going to Harvard was from the Taxi Workers Union, which my father was a member of, which paid most of the tuition for the first year. And, uh, and I was also very shaped as a young gay man by the AIDS movement. And so for me, and I think a lot of people who end up in these kinds of organizations committed to building democratic power for working class people, people of color, there's this sense of lineage and a sense of debt and of belonging to a tradition. So apart from what you do day to day, which keeps you in contact there's also this kind of larger sense of your life's trajectory and life's arc as being part of a you know much longer struggle. So you're doing your part and you're paying back your debt and hopefully uh, laying some seeds for, for people who are coming after you. How did the rise of Trump and his 
election as president and, and the way he's governed. How did that affect you and, and the Center for Community Change? Yeah, it was a, an earth-shattering event. I uh, had a suspicion, uh, fear, that it might be coming. I did a conversation with my uh, the person who I co-ran the organization with, who's wonderful, who succeeded me, Dorian Warren, that was uh, published you know, in the summer before the election, where I was expressing great alarm, where I thought the ingredients were there for Trump's success. I... Uh, especially for an organization whose core commitments was to immigrant rights and building the power of immigrant communities. It was, um, you know, really catastrophic development. We had to kind of go into a, like much, I think, of the progressive movement, go into a rapid response defensive posture for a couple of years leading to the 2018 elections. And, um, there was enormous grief and anger from partners and grassroots leaders and staff all along the way to work with. Uh, it was and remains, I think, for people who were on the front lines, a super intense and difficult and really, really charged experience. It's hard to even put into words the kind of direction shift that we are experiencing in so many ways, right? Yeah, it feels like the axis of, of the world uh, tilted, you know, the, the, the arc of history bent in a, in a really terrible direction with that election. Um, now, I don't think the die is cast, obviously, and uh, I think we can dig our way out of it. This election feels immensely consequential and important. It was like the um, manifestation of some, some very disturbing trends that have been building for a long time, I think, and uh, burst into the open, into public view. And we're going to be digging our way out of the consequences for, for quite some time, I think. I think so, too. How do you view the 2020 field and what do you think needs to be done to win this one? <laughs> yeah, I confess that I'm, I'm no expert on this at all, and I'm, I'm probably – among the great confused when it comes to the candidates, I have not uh, I have not aligned myself with any of the Democratic candidates yet. My general view is that winning the election is going to require mobilizing passionate base volunteers to do turnout and be engaged and the kind of core constituencies of the Democratic Party, and it will require also reaching out to people who are not part of the choir already, and that is tricky. And I'm not sure I know what the formula is for how to do that or the candidate that's right to do that. The thing I am sure about is for everybody outside the kind of primary process that there is one central imperative, which is to defeat Donald Trump in 2020. And that doing so can be reduced to a matter of math and to turnout. And so that for all of us, you know, whatever our stance on the primary is, that as soon as it's over, all attention should be focused on turnout and to defeating the president. And we kind of have to bring a united front sensibility to that enterprise where whatever differences we have with each other, they really 
don't matter that much, in my opinion, in this historical context. And uh, we need to lick our wounds from whatever whatever wounds there are from the primary battles and, and do the job that needs to be done. So that's that's where my head is at. It, I think it's going to be a pretty challenging to repair, almost regardless of which candidate wins the nomination at this point. But I, I really hope we do it well. It's going to take some serious leadership. Tell me about why you decided to step down as president. I'm always curious about that move because it's, you know, succession planning and finding someone to replace you is always tricky. How did you accomplish that and and why? You know, there's a certain poetry to it. So 2018 was the 50th anniversary of the organization and I'd been there for 16 years, which is, you know, longer than I'd intended and there's, I think, something to be said for leadership renewal at these kind of bigger anchor organizations in our movement. Even the best of us can kind of get into a certain pattern and way of doing things. And there's, there's a lot to be said for, um, for bringing new voices and new ideas and new perspectives into leadership in our movement. The organization was in a really good place and has, um, you know, had immense talent at all levels. My partner in crime and running the organization was interested in succeeding me. He's um, fantastic. The board was stable and really owned the organization. So while politically things were dark, organizationally things were bright. And um, I had some appetites to think about some things out on a longer time horizon personally that I wanted to, uh, to take on as a kind of next chapter. So um, there's never a perfect time, but it, it seemed like if you're going to step away, this was the best time in the, the trajectory of the organization to do it. How quickly did you locate this academic position, or was that already landed? I took the advice of a lot of friends who left major organizations, and I actually took a long time off where I had no plans of any kind. You know, I traveled and saw friends and renewed a spiritual practice and um, slowed the pace of life radically down, which was wonderful. And I got recruited to come to CUNY by a longtime heroine of mine, Francis Fox Piven, one of the other bogey people of the right who um, wrote Poor People's Movement. And she she said, uh, yeah, she said, uh, CUNY is the place for you. And so uh, I started teaching in the fall, and um, and she was right. I'm teaching at this school of labor and urban studies, which has got a student body that's very diverse, working class, and people who've got a real passion for public service and social change, and a faculty that's rooted in the labor movement and in community organizing and social movements. So it's kind of felt like home more than any other academic position I could think of to uh, to go from from what I did to to here has been really a pretty smooth, smooth transition. What are you teaching? I'm teaching a couple courses, one on uh, U.S. social and economic policy, and, and the other is uh, a brand new experiment. It's a, it's a class on, on power and strategy that uh, I'm co-teaching with some colleagues that's actually geared to practitioners, campaigners, union organizers, um, social movement people. Uh, so we're doing an inaugural class with mostly non-traditional students um, who have 10 or 15, in some cases, 20 years of experience building big winning campaigns. And so that's pretty exciting and a, kind of an opportunity to 
figure out how to teach some fundamentals of, of strategy and how to think about moving power. So that's been fun. Does it feel like a place that you'll be for a long time or do you itch to get back into sort of movement building directly? Yeah, I have a, a few big projects that I want to pursue. and I'm not really sure how long they'll take, um, probably a couple of years at least. One of them is to working with a lot of other colleagues to kind of craft a vision for immigration for the 21st century. I feel like it is a huge vulnerability for the progressive agenda in general, not just the United States, but around the world, really, that we don't have some satisfying answers to some really big questions um, about immigration, nor do we have, I think, yet a convincing strategy to achieve that. We know we're against all the cruelty and viciousness that's being visited upon immigrants, but but what are we for and, and how do we put that together? The second project, which is about uh, economic justice, policy, and poverty. So, you know, we're in a time of people dreaming up big new ideas about how to tackle climate change and universal basic income and Medicare for all. And I think there needs to be something of a comparable scale around addressing poverty. So trying to mine my own experience and that of other people to um, to do some writing and thinking about what that kind of new vision might be. And then the last piece is really around how to support our best practitioners, our campaigners, our organizers um, in doing the work better. So kind of helping to do a strategic upgrade in progressive community uh, movement organizing practice. That work, I feel like we're, we're not quite punching at our weight and we need to be doing better, sharpening our, our sense of how change occurs and what the right interventions are. So, so those are the projects I'll be doing for a little while, so at least for the next couple of years. I think I read that you're mentoring some social justice leaders and organizers. Yeah. What's, what's happening there? Yeah. So um, one of the great, great uh, joys of, of this time is I've been approached by organizers and activists from climate movement, immigrant rights, some labor organizers to provide coaching and support to them on the work that they do. And I've always liked doing that. Uh, it's always been one of the favorite most satisfying parts of the work for me. And uh, now I have a little more time to do it. So it's been a blast. And it's also kind of kept me in touch with the newer currents of, of uh, where the energy is and where the passion is. Yeah. You were kind enough to share with me a draft article that you've written for The Nation mm -hmm. yeah. uh, called From Resistance to Governing. Is that out yet? No. Uh, hopefully in the next month, six weeks or so. Okay. I've read it. What are you pushing for in this article? The focus of, of almost all progressives right now is appropriately on uh, the 2020 election and, and defeating Donald Trump, and I'm all for that. I do think we need to, to think past the election to what it would look like to govern successfully, because there's such a dialectic between elections and governing, and obviously who wins the election sets the table for what can be done. But it's equally true that how you govern sets the conditions for what the electoral landscape looks like. And I don't think, even if Trump loses, we are anywhere out of the woods in terms of the challenges we face. They're much deeper than him. So from that perspective, I wrote a piece that looked at my own experience 
and being one of the players in the early Obama years around what's to be learned from that period that we might apply to thinking about how to govern in in a new democratic administration, if that hopefully happens. And the basic kind of takeaway is my critique of the Obama years is not the usual progressive critique, which is that they were not bold enough or radical enough in what they proposed. I think that's true in some cases, but I think there were pretty massive constraints as well in what could be accomplished. My critique is more that for all the good that happened around redistributing income and resources through the Affordable Care Act and stimulus bill, downwards to some degree, there was no comparable effort to redistribute power or alter relationships of power in society in the Obama years. That we came into the Obama administration with unions having 7% of the private sector workforce, uh, much of the liberal establishment being quite weak in terms of its real social base and energy and power. And we left the Obama years with with all those institutions weaker, arguably, than they were when we started. And my article contrasts that to the way that the right thinks about governance, where their first act is to figure out how to strengthen the power of conservative constituencies and weaken the power of liberal and left constituencies. That was most clearly on display after the 2010 elections when Republicans swept state legislatures and governor's mansions around the country, and they prioritized stripping voting rights from voters, particularly affecting black voters, young voters, etc., and also right-to-work laws, which weakened especially public sector unions, a pillar of democratic politics. So there's a kind of ruthlessness about power that the Republican Party brings to governance, pursuing things that aren't popular necessarily or top of the list for voters, but create a cycle in which accomplishing them makes it possible to accomplish more in the policy domain. So the article is really an argument for thinking about governance, not just in terms of what's good public policy, although I'm for that, but thinking about it in terms of how to empower, restructure power in our societies so that the policy we win is sustainable and more can be accomplished in the future. It feels like the constraints that you mentioned that structured what Obama was able to do would also apply to that kind of effort or would have applied to him then and might apply to a Democrat elected now. Do you see moves that can be made that don't require a lot more Democrats in the House and Senate? Yeah. I mean, so there's two parts to it. There's what does a new administration and a new Congress do? And there's what do movement actors on the outside do? And they're both equally important. For the electeds, you know, I think there has to be some critical examination of, of what can really be done legislatively and what can be done through executive action, through creative use of executive action, given the playing field that will confront us after the 2020 election. Even if there's a divided Congress, there still are actions that can be taken administratively. So, for example, 
in immigration, there is a great deal that can be done to legalize populations, to um, remove the kind of fear that inhibits participation and activism, to make naturalization um, and voter registration at naturalization ceremonies easier, to integrate people into American life. There's a huge agenda that could be pursued simply through executive action. In the realm of the courts, obviously, confirming judges at a much more rapid clip than the Obama administration did to strengthen progressive, you know, voices within the judiciary is going to be an essential and fundamental task. Thinking about how to use the bully pulpit to support workers' struggles around the formation of unions in a way that the Obama administration never particularly embraced. There's tools that can be used, and it's really an orientation that's got a mentality to say, we understand that the extent of the policy we can win depends on the level of organization and power on the outside that exists, and we have a responsibility to the actors trying to build that power to help move it along using whatever tools we have. That orientation has not generally characterized establishment democratic politicians, and they, in the end, as well as progressive forces, suffer for that lack of orientation to power. So that's the how it gets done will depend on facts and circumstances, but the centrality of it should not be something that we have to fight to convince people about. It feels like the critique that you offer of Obama is quite different than, say, the critique that Biden might offer or that Sanders might offer. Do you think that if we elect one or the other or a third or fourth person, that they can hear you in the argument that you're making equally? Or how do you think this gets received by a new president? The, the way this would, would need to happen, I think, is that there would have to be people inside a new administration who saw a still very sobering landscape even after winning the national election and want to alter it in some, some basic and fundamental ways. And so that appetite would have to exist in some parts of a new administration, whether that's with the president themselves or with, with people that they have in place. But they'll have to be met, I think, with some high-level strategists from the progressive side, from outside groups, who really bring some orderliness to all the pent-up demand there will be from liberal groups to fix all the damage of the Trump years, right? There'll be laundry lists of demands for policy fixes in a million arenas. And there's going to have to be some ability to sort through that and say, in order to achieve any of this, we need to together focus on some things to strengthen the power of progressive forces, I think particularly the union movement, but other parts of it as well. Uh, voting power, uh, immigrant naturalization are obvious ones as well that change the math in fundamental ways. So there can have to be some meeting of the minds around a strategic approach to governance. Because otherwise, I think that the thing that I fear is we were met in the early Obama years by the Tea Party 
and a massive upswelling of resistance, kind of a massive resistance campaign to liberal governance. What we saw then will be a pale shadow of what we see with almost any Democratic president in 2021. Like the level of right-wing mobilization will be ferocious and intense at a level we haven't seen in some time. If that's the case, then the counter-mobilization of progressive forces and the strengthening of those forces and creating some call and response between a Democratic administration uh, and people in the country is going to be pivotal. Because if the attitude is, we've got this, like we're going to go inside the beltway and do stuff that none of you understand and you know leave it to us experts, we've got this. If that's the attitude again, it's just going to be a recipe for complete disaster and we will be back into Trumpism in the next midterms for sure and possibly in the next presidential. So the stakes are super high on coming at this in a much more strategic way, I think. I'm not sure who is going to win this election. I'm a little pessimistic, but if we win and you could even imagine Trump leading that resistance and on behalf of his son to run the next time and starting with a whole the whole Trump organization, the campaign just continuing right after and hooking up with a Tea Party type world. The most fateful decisions I feel like the Obama people made was to essentially demobilize Obama for America into an email list after the election. That may be overly harsh. It could have been much more the base for you know, a progressive movement to give some oxygen to a progressive agenda. I think we can be clear that if Trump loses the election and if he leaves the White House, it is unlikely that he will disappear from the national stage. He is almost certainly going to be at the vanguard of an aggrieved group that has a tinge or more than a tinge of violence and extremism about it that is going to keep him in the headlines and is going to keep this politics of resentment and fear and hatred in the center of the story for a long time to come. That shouldn't come as a surprise to us when it happens, right? That's something we could plan towards and think through how do we ensure that there's significant continued mobilization past the election, that we don't fall back into passivity and politics as a spectator sport uh, after 2020 is done. There's people I've heard argue that, you know, one direction is sort of, which is, I think your argument is demonstrating progressive achievements quickly. Another kind of category of people seem to be pushing sort of a healing strategy where you know, you might do a lot of more consensus work and accrue political capital in that way. And you've seen that happen sometimes in states that have moderate governors of either party and they become very popular and able to do things. Where do you stand on that kind of two different routes? Yeah, I mean, I basically think that underneath all of this polarization the thing underneath it is there's just an enormous amount of hurt in the country and sometimes material desperation in the country. And so if a Democrat governs and there is no visible line between what they do and the everyday quality of people's lives, that there's no amount of soothing rhetoric or 
kind of bromides about national unity or any of that that is going to get us to a different place, that the fundamental for a Democrat is going to be to show up and fight and show up and deliver wherever it can be done for people who are struggling who turned out in the election. There has to be a return to the view of politics as something you participate in and that there is some return in your daily life from, particularly for for working class people where the record with Democrats has been of being urged to vote because it's such an important election and then finding on the other side a suite of policies that are either weak tea or actually amount to a kind of concession to corporate interests in deep ways. So I think the deep danger is to think that like there's some moderate neoliberal corporate consensus that we can return to. Uh, I think those days are gone and um, a Democrat is going to have to govern to succeed from a place of how do we deliver to respond to the very real grievances people have about their lives. When the Democrats took over the House in 2018, they passed H.R. Uh, 1, uh, which obviously couldn't get anywhere in the Senate, but was designed to address some of these power type things. What's your view on that as a start? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to put democracy at the center. This is why I don't think there is any moral equivalence between how the right governs when it essentially tries to restrict access to democracy, to narrow democracy, to whiten democracy, to weaken working class organization. And when Democrats embrace getting money out of politics, expanding uh, voting rights, expanding the notion of who can participate and giving people more means to organize, that's a pro-democracy agenda. So I think it is hopeful to me that there are, I feel like, increasing numbers of people who are clear-eyed about the challenges of power that we face inside the party and in the movement. Um, I think the last few years of, of dealing with reaction have kind of exposed the extent to which this needs to be at the center of our vision. So I think there's at least the possibility for a different way of coming at things in 2021. I could imagine that someone like you would be pretty helpful in an administration, a new administration, progressive administration. Is there a position that you would just love to have? <laughs> uh, you know, I spent my entire career on the outside uh, pushing in, and um, I don't know that I would be good on the inside. You know, one of the things I, I did for this article was try to look back and see situations where, like in the 1930s or in the 1960s, where you had both popular movements and people in key positions who were kind of determined to do a call and response with those movements. Like, those moments in history are rare. And um, in both those circumstances, whether it was Harry Hopkins or Sergeant Shriver on the inside or all the movement practitioners on the outside creating the conditions for for big gains. Those movements are pretty rare in American history. I think I'm probably more likely to be of use on the outside, but I certainly wouldn't rule anything out. Uh, the big thing would be if we could get to a place where those po gains were possible, <laughs> then, you know, that would be 
uh, a wonderful thing to get to live to, live through and contribute to it anyway. How do you think the climate crisis fits into this? Here's like a extreme imperative for the planet, right? And it isn't exactly the kind of normal issue that we've been used to dealing with for a hundred years in this country, but it is part of the democratic platform, no matter what candidate, I think. How would you fit that into this? Yeah, I have to say I'm inspired beyond uh, what I can express by the level and passion and intensity of um, climate activism, especially among young people. I think it is in the United States and around the world. I think it is you know, maybe the single biggest asset that broader progressive politics has because it's only going to grow. You know, it's the movement of the future that thinks internationally, that thinks across generations, uh, that I think makes a, a real link between the environment and issues of economic and racial justice increasingly. So um, I'm a huge fan, and I think the Green New Deal has provided a really valuable galvanizing focal point for that energy, and it's like a paradigm of how to bring a variety of progressive agendas together. I think there's a really strong case for a democratic administration, for a movement focus that leads with climate and climate justice in that broader sense, you know, where good jobs and economic security and equity and so forth are all part of that package. Um, I think there's a really strong case for it. The challenge is going to be, again, one of power that because of the way our constitution is organized and the power of, you know, these resource producing states uh, in our political system and so on and so forth, that I think it's going to take a while before the power of the movement can break through all of the obstacles that the political system by design has in place to prevent it from breaking through. So I still think that puts into question what are the ways of reducing the power of the fossil fuel industry from the perspective of government? What are the ways that um, leaders in government can breathe oxygen into this movement, create some call and response to give it a sense of momentum and victory and accomplishment. So how it plays out, I don't know, but putting it at the center of, of the agenda seems like the right thing from both a, a moral and a movement point of view. It feels like it's been a really long time I'm trying to think of when we would count when the progressive left was in charge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you think that if we elected a standard bearer of that, maybe that's Sanders or Warren, that they know what to do, that there's enough support in the elected world to wield power? Yeah, I am worried about that. I think, you know, it's telling that Obama brought in essentially Clinton retreads to his administration for his economic policy, which was the crucial policy. And I feel like we, it was a fateful set of disasters flowed from that choice that we're still living with the consequences of decision to, to not focus on people who are foreclosed, but bail out bankers, not prosecute them. All of that is the backdrop for the current populist moment we're in. So my worries about it are twofold, less about kind of whether we have people who understand the mechanics of governance, because there are a lot of people 
who I think can move from the Hill or, or who have experience in agencies, who have progressive bona fides, who can do that work. My worry is more about whether a progressive administration will be able to strategically master the, the kind of tsunami of resistance that will come from the other side and manage to bring out the, the best in our progressive movement, the best fighting spirit and energy and unleash that power as opposed to try to suppress it or manage it or get lost in internecine warfare with it, as I think sometimes the Obama people did. Like that is a very difficult and challenging thing to do. And then what to do in a way that delivers where it's possible, but doesn't get lost in an opaque Washington process that feels totally detached from people's lives and from movement struggles. It is a very tall order, I think, to do that. On the movement side, my worry about governance is there's a natural tendency to turn towards Washington when there's a Democrat in the White House. And some of that's legitimate, but you can fool yourself into thinking, well, there's a, a, a consensus for these progressive policies in the country. And so really, you know, it's just about how we lobby and advocate for them inside the beltway that matters, when actually it's exactly at that point that it's more important to turn outwards, to communicate about the fight, to engage people in fights, to talk to the unconverted. All that becomes 10 times more important when there's a Democrat in the White House. And um, so I worry about that tendency to turn towards the beltway at a time when the right will be turning towards mobilizing forces of resistance outside the beltway that is can be difficult. And then lastly, you know, I am not a believer. I, I believe that there are progressive forces arising and surging in the country. I do not yet think this is a uh, progressive country. And so I differ from some of my colleagues in thinking that the, you know, the central task of recruitment, not just mobilizing people who agree with progressives about everything, but recruiting people who have mixed consciousness, who have complicated views, or agree on some issues, but not on other issues, but maybe are mostly just a muddle. That's most of America, in my opinion, that that work is crucial. And if, if we fool ourselves into thinking that there's vast agreement on these these radical priorities without doing the hard work of recruiting more people and engaging with them where they're at, we're setting ourselves up, I think, for a huge, huge backlash. What do you think we can learn from the way that Trump has governed that would serve us in governing in turn? So I think there is a, a set of political conventions about you know, kind of a respectability approach to governance that Democrats often follow that is increasingly not relevant to to the way people relate to politics. So the kind of rawness and authenticity and kind of leading with what you believe to be true, that style of politics on both the left and the right is ascendant. And I think there has to be more of that kind of courage to speak plainly and truthfully about what you see to be right and what you see to be wrong and less of the kind of poll tested massaged 
play-it-safe approach, which I think tends to tune people out and mask the real fights that are at play and the real interests that are contesting in issues. Um, I think one thing that Trump has done is he has always been clear about where he stands and been unafraid to take it to his opponents. He's also been unafraid to rally his supporters at pivotal times and to kind of keep up this connection between governing and uh, his base, unafraid to deliver for the base, quite ruthless about doing so, in fact. And that kind of sensibility about understanding that there's got to be a current of power flowing between a democratic administration and its core supporters um, is, I think, absolutely pivotal um, to take from it. And then lastly, uh, I think Trump has showed the powers of executive action in situations where divided government has prevented him from accomplishing uh, some legislation. And uh, I do think Democrats are going to need to pursue that line of thinking with great aggressiveness in 2021. I think I agree with a lot of what you said. I wonder if we end up ping-ponging between very different models of governance in one administration after another. But we'll see what happens. Well, I mean, I think the questions about that have to do more with things that drive long-term social consensus in the country than with how, how Democrats govern in the White House. So if all that progressives do is mobilize people who already agree with us to either support a legislative proposal or a candidate or oppose it, and there isn't this long, patient work of building organization and consciousness and community among people who are not, and that's the vast majority of the country, who are not aligned, um, I think we will not see an end to the kind of moving from one extreme to another, that the, the way to build a new consensus, new progressive consensus, lies through the path of, of long-term organizing. And I think that is the only possible way to break the back of the authoritarianism we're living with now. Is there a question that I have failed to ask that you wish I had? Um, not that I can think of. Yeah, I think we covered we covered a lot of ground. Well, it's been a real honor to talk to you, and I appreciate your time. Anything else you want to say? No, I'm great. Enjoyed it very much. Okay. I did too. That was Deepak Bhargava. You can find him on Wikipedia, among other places. I'm glad we have folks like Deepak thinking about how to make progressive change. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.